the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, there's nothing like talking with longtime friends. I used to say old friends, and someone said you should just say longtime friends because it might be insulting. But uh, Tevi Troy is neither uh, old uh, nor uh, easily offended. He is, however... Uh, one of the great presidential and cultural historians of our time. He is the author of several uh, books, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, uh, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. He is the former Deputy Director of Health and Human Services, among other things. He is my friend. Tevi, welcome back to the show. Yes, and of all those things you listed, I am proudest of the last one. Oh, so that's thank sweet. you very much that's for your friendship. Sweet. That's very sweet and kind. Thank you. Well, I wanted to get you on, uh, we have you on from time to time, but I wanted to get you on particularly today on what is officially known as Washington's birthday in uh, federal code, most uh, mostly known now colloquially as President's Day. Um, you know that 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 in and of itself is kind of a is is kind of a pet peeve of mine. It rankles. It rankles. It rankles, right? Especially from your monologue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how it rankles you if it does. Well, as you know, Seth, I'm a very happy-go-lucky, easygoing guy. Yeah. So, as a presidential historian, I can lean into this concept of presidency. Yeah. That said, I'm very sympathetic to what you said about. Well, all presidents? Do we celebrate Cesar A. Arthur like we celebrate Abraham Lincoln? Of course not. There are great presidents, and we should celebrate them. Right. But as someone who's a fan the institution of the presidency, sure. I'm willing to go along with this great day, and, and I don't want to um, belittle it in any way, even as we really know that the presidents were celebrated in Washington and Lincoln. There, there's kind of the point right there, because if we're going to have a holiday, and this is why I love – a lot of our holidays, whether they be July 4th or Martin Luther King Day, it should be a day where some of that day is dedicated to celebrating and honoring and learning something about or teaching something about uh, the reason for that holiday, whether it's uh, any of those, uh, Thanksgiving. We should learn a little bit about it. And, okay, so I always thought it would be a neat thing to take a day and spend it on teaching Washington and Lincoln. We didn't think twice about it growing up. My schools and every school I ever visited used to have pictures of them in the, in the, in the classrooms, in the elementary grades, first and second to be sure. They aren't there anymore. But I just don't think we're, we're teaching anything. I think by the, by, the, by the neutering of it or the denuding of, of those names, I think now we just take it as a as a three day weekend and an excuse to do something else. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being cynical. Maybe I'm sounding old. Yeah, I, I don't want to take the place of the uh, revolution speech on uh, on Friday. Uh-huh. Who does a great job? But this morning I was in synagogue doing my morning prayers, and they asked me to step in because the rabbi wasn't there to give a biblical learning, uh-huh. and I gave the teaching and I I uh, twisted it or not, uh, I applied it to President's Day. Good. And I made it about President's Day and leadership lessons we can learn from this, this week's portion. And then someone came up to me in the synagogue afterwards and said, 
you know what we should do every year on President's Day, or Washington's birthday, if you correctly know, we should read the letter that Washington yeah. wrote to yeah. the Rhode Island City yeah. which I think is just a terrific idea. It is a terrific idea, and uh, I mentioned it in my monologue, too. There's a lot of learning from that one letter and that one act of George Washington. That's the thing about Washington. You've written a lot about George Washington. That is the thing about George Washington, is I don't think most people under the age of, uh, well, probably most Americans generally would know that much about him. The truth is there's an awful lot to learn from and about George Washington, uh, not just in his presidency, not just in what led up to his presidency, but even in just the man himself. You and I both like the Aristotelian notion of to teach character and virtue is to put the best way to teach character and virtue is to put someone of character and virtue in front of someone, you know, in front of the youth, in front of the child. Few people could match uh, the fingernail of George Washington. It's absolutely true. And the thing about George Washington is when he was president, everything he did was a precedent. Right. Every single thing. Yeah. Everything. And conscious of it. He knew it all the time. Yeah. He said, I'm only going to run for two terms, knowing that just about everybody would follow in his footsteps, mm-hmm. except for Franklin Roosevelt, and we had to do a constitutional amendment right. to put in place what we already knew was the right thing to do. Right. He was very conscious about how he applied himself, how he comported himself as president, and that's something that we should be grateful to to this day. He, um, he, he gave us a lot, and and indispensable for a great many reasons. I think it was Flexner who, yeah, Flexner who came up with that phrase. Um, talk to me a moment, too. We'll go back and forth on some of this stuff, but talk to me a little bit, too, about a, a, an issue that, that I know you're very familiar with. Uh, some of our mutual historian friends are very familiar with, too, which is the way the Academy has treated the ranking and the ratings, I should say, of presidents that kind of filters down into the general knowledge, too, in a way that may be unhelpful, uh, or at least maybe unfair to history in some respects? Yeah, this started with an Arthur Schlesinger-led initiative to rank the president, and it was a bunch of liberal historians ranking the president. (laughs) And as you can imagine, liberal presidents did better, or even presidents with a D after their name. And this is really one of the reasons why the god-awful Woodrow Wilson, who was a terrible president and a terrible human being, always got better rankings than he deserved, because he had a D after his name for Democrats. He was a terrible president on every level. A Republican can hate what he stood for, and a Democrat could hate what he stood for. And he really skated by with a better reputation than he deserved, literally for generations. And it's only now when people people, uh, with the... um, Kind of, kind of with the, the racial awakening that we've had or awakening that we've had in the last couple of years, that people on the left are, are recognizing what an awful president he was and what the right recognized for a long time. I was so going to say, yeah, we, we for many years have try, tried to point out this is the man who segregated Washington. This is the man who showed a KKK documentary in the White House. We have we have tried. We have we, we aren't right. catching and, up to that. They are right. And resegregated yeah. the federal government. Yeah. I mean, he was so bad on so many levels. But. The Republicans who pointed this out, the conservatives who pointed this out, it was always seemed like a sour grape. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't like him because he was of the other party. That's not the case. We don't like him because he was a terrible president. I like right. Grover Cleveland. He was a Democrat. Yeah. But he was a conservative Democrat who you know, believed in the appropriate use of American power and balancing the budget. So you know, there are plenty of Democrats I can be okay with historically, but I'm, I'm not okay with Woodrow Wilson. And again, this is only one example of how that presidential ranking has skewed yeah. our historical views of our president. And I think it's a good time today on President's Day to 
reclaim who really are the great presidents, and it's worth discussing. One of the things history was unkind to, uh, what those ratings were unkind to until very, very, very recently, was Ulysses S. Grant. All anyone ever knew about Ulysses S. Grant was that he was a drinker, and that his, uh, his, 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 his presidency was scandalized. And that's all really everyone knew. The progressives kind of just implanted that notion of Grant into the general wisdom. And then people actually started doing a little more work on Grant, and they started reading his memoirs, and they started reading historians like Al Felsenberg, a friend of ours, and they started saying, wait a minute, this is the man Frederick Douglass gave up and turned down a presidential run for to campaign for. Hold on. Why was this guy so bad? Right? Absolutely right. The Ron Chernow book on him I yep. think is, is terrific and, and worth reading. And look, the thing about Grant is that the, the things that people knew about him were a, a drunker, corrupt administration and a butcher. Right. But the more we learn into him, first of all, he had stopped drinking. He right. did have a drinking period early in his life. But in the Civil War, he had an aide full-time who was assigned to him to make sure that he didn't drink. He knew he couldn't handle it. He also, uh, in terms of the corrupt thing, there was, there was some corruption in his administration, and it did lead to some civil service reforms which were important. But he was personally absolved, and he, had, he was not responsible for these, some of these things that happened on his administration during his watch. And then the third thing in terms of the butcher, he later, in, in retrospect, when we see what a brilliant general he was, he may have been the greatest general of the 19th century. And I know, and I say that knowing about Napoleon Bonaparte. So he really was a brilliant general. He was a terrific president, and he was a, and he was a good person. And um, I do think he has been ill-served by history. And again, he had that R after his name, and, yep. and it didn't serve him well. Yep, that's exactly right. And I have to say a word about his memoirs, too. One of the greatest gifts I was ever given— twofold uh, on his memoirs. One was a copy of them uh, by a mutual friend of our speechwriter years ago. And then again, two years ago by some friends of mine who gave me, you know, it just moved me like no other. And next time you're out here, I hope it's soon. I'll show them to you. Uh, they gave me a first uh, a first, uh, first edition to wow. volume a copy of his memoirs, which is its own great story. I got to take a quick commercial break. We'll pick up on that when we come back. And we'll talk about some other interesting things about President's Day. And column you just wrote about a president's first decision. Kind of interesting. You read the headline uh, and uh, you might think, well, their first decision is picking their vice president or their running mate. Um, no, there's something actually a little more important than that. And I never thought of it the way you wrote it up. Tevi Troy is our guest. His most recent book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential historian. Among his uh, books, his most recent one is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. They're all fun and they're all greatly, um, greatly edifying and educating. Um, what Jefferson read, Ike watched, and Obama tweeted 200 years of popular culture in the White House is a, is a really fun read. Tevi, speaking of great reads, um, the Grant memoirs, Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, the story about them is almost almost as good as what's in them. But to read them is to read poetry. And the way they got published is kind of interesting. And if people know the name Samuel Clemens, he had a big hand in this, right? Oh, absolutely. So first let me say they are the greatest 
memoirs written by a president, and they don't even touch his presidency. Yeah, right. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, but second of all, Grant, uh, I mentioned scandal in his career. Uh, yes, he, there was scandal in his presidency, but there's also scandal in his personal life afterwards. He was bamboozled out of his money by a Wall Street slim artist with whom he was partnered. And so Grant was looking at a very severe prospect of ha- having no money, and he found out he had throat cancer. And so he had no way to support his family. He was worried about his soon-to-be widow, Julia. And he came up with this idea of writing his memoirs, and he was writing it for a magazine, but then Mark Twain spoke to him, Samuel Clemens, and they came up with this idea that Mark Twain would publish them. And they were a huge success. He finished them right before he died. So he kind of bequeathed this to his wife, and they made a ton of money. It was $300,000, which is a lot of money in those days in a very short period. And his wife had what to live on based on those memoirs that he wrote as a dying man. Tevi, it was, um, I don't know, I, this this could get me in trouble. It goes back to something you said in the previous segment about uh, though he had a D after his name, it shouldn't matter whether we agree with them or not. Uh, something along those lines, there are some Ds we agree with and some R's in our history we agree with. I'm trying to think of a thing more and more of something I disagreed with John Kennedy on. Is that wrong? John Kennedy, I mean, there was, there was a book written by our friend Iris Stoll, right, JFK conservative. Yeah. And so there were a lot of things that JFK did that were largely on the right side of the aisle. I can tell you right now, based on my friend Philip Howard's book, something that you will disagree with with John Kennedy, which is he allowed um, he allowed public sector unions to emerge in the federal government, yeah, which is right. a huge mistake yeah. and very damaging to our country, and yeah. it's really worth reading Philip K. Howard's book on that subject. But uh, for the most part, I think John F. Kennedy... Is, let's let's just put it this way. I might not have voted for him. I probably wouldn't have voted for him over Richard Nixon in 1960. But he's a kind of Democrat we would be very happy to have today compared to the Democrats we've had in recent years. Is Ed Koch, whom you just did a big piece and commentary on, a similar type of Democrat, or is there something different? Is it more a cultural explanation, or is he a throwback to that kind of Democratic Party? I think he is. He used to call himself a liberal with sanity. Uh-huh. He also would say, if you agree with me on 8 out of 12 issues, you should vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 out of 12 issues, you should see a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> That's always very funny. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, Ed Koch is to the left of where I am and where you are, Seth, but the kind of guy I could live with, and I thought he was a pretty good mayor. And uh, he certainly didn't put up with any of this woke nonsense today. Uh, he was a real emperor-has-no-clothes kind of guy. He called it as he, he saw it, and he would things that are you know, not as they are and, and say this is not the truth. This is not reality. And so I, I admire him for that. Again, more to the left than, than you or I. Um, probably more to the left than Kennedy, but still a very solid mayor, a very strong on America's role in the world, an, an anti-communist, and a strong supporter of Israel, and uh, someone I, w- I was proud to be friends with. Um, Tevi, do you buy, and maybe this is an unfair question, and, and if and if it is, just say so and we'll move on or, or cast it any way you want. But do you buy some of the, as we're talking about Democrats of yore that we would have a hard time voting against or I might have a harder time voting against, do you buy into this narrative that's taken hold for the past generation or so that the parties switched, that the parties switched their views, the parties kind of reversed, that the party of Lincoln is really the Democratic Party now and the party of Jefferson Davis is really the party of, 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 of the, is really the Republican Party today? Yeah, I don't buy that. 
um, I do see that in the last 20 years, the voter bases of the parties have switched yeah. and that the Republican Party was the party of the kind of college-educated elite yeah. Yeah. 20 years ago, and now it's more of a party of the, the working class. Um, I attribute that more to kind of the development of wokeism on the universities and a whole generation of university-educated people comfortable with that and the, the great kind of uh, working class in America looking at this and kind of taking the Ed Koch view of the emperor has no clothes yeah. to it. So I, I see that behind the switch in the demographics behind each party more than I certainly wouldn't call the Republican Party the Jefferson Davis Party. It's a party of Lincoln for a reason, and I think it remains the party of Lincoln. So, yeah, sometimes you see voter bases change. A lot of that has to do with uh, demographics of where the voters are, but also demographics in terms of who is aging. Right, The people who grew up when Ronald Reagan was president they saw Ronald Reagan as their model president, and a lot of them became lifelong Republicans before it. I was visiting my father today, who, is, as you know, Seth, is uh, almost 93 years old, and I asked him on the president day, well, who's your favorite president? And he said FDR. FDR was the president for 12 years during his childhood, and that has a very powerful effect. Yeah. So I think the demographics of who is president when you're a kid, and remember, Barack Obama was president for eight years yeah. uh, during the lifetimes of a lot of people who are now core voters, uh, I, I, think that, I think that has an impact. It is interesting, isn't it, uh, the, the, the imprint that two terms can leave. That, did George W. Bush leave any kind of imprint along those lines? In a weird way, my inclination is to say not as much as someone like Barack Obama, regardless of the ideology, just factually yeah, I, I not think, as I much. Think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right, because the, the Democrats, for the most part, still embrace Obama, whereas right. there's a large segment of Republicans who don't embrace right. George W. Bush. No, I think... Bush left with a bit of a bad taste in yeah. the mouth of the country in terms of uh, a couple of things happened towards the end of his second term with uh, Katrina, the financial meltdown, and the ongoing wars in, in Iraq was more of a problem then and in Afghanistan. So uh, I, I think the eight years of Bush did not have the same kind of impact on imprinting republicanism on a generation of voters that obama had in terms of imprinting democratic or fdr in a way too there's something odd let me let me let you think about it but reagan did have that yeah reagan did and that's exactly right as the as did fdr because there's something i don't know if i can put my finger on it i'm thinking about it for the first time we'll pick it up on the other side of this break if it's okay but there's something about whether it's the president's doing or not and i don't mean this as a pejorative necessarily but George W. Bush didn't hold himself out and didn't have the appreciation that – how do you put it? I, I, I'm tempted to say a cult figure like FDR or Reagan or Obama. It's not quite fair to say cult figure, but some kind of hero, maybe some kind of heroism in and of himself that George W. Bush just didn't seem to have. Maybe he did shortly after 9-11. Maybe it was short-lived. Maybe you can help fill out what I'm trying to explain more articulately when we come right back. Tevi Troy is our guest. I'm Seth Liebson. You've probably heard me talk about why refi for a while now. And if you have any questions about investing with them, they'd love to put you in touch with any number of their very satisfied clients and customers in the Phoenix area who have invested with them and done very, very well. How's your IRA doing? Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? And you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn tax deferred. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com or 888-YREFI-34.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential historian and uh, a, a lot of things, actually. He was uh, served as a domestic policy advisor, uh, deputy secretary of health and human services, but uh, presidential historian in um, in uh, in his most recent years. Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, his most recent of books, all of them great reading, though. Tevi, I said something, and I, and I don't know if you want to kind of correct or fix or fill it in if it made sense about that imprint that certain presidents, two-term or more presidents, had on the population that George W. Bush didn't quite seem to have. There wasn't a kind of a cult of personality around him the way there was around Obama or Reagan, for that matter, or maybe FDR. And I And I don't like the word cult of personality because some of them, you know, nursed it more than others. But you kind of pick up on what I'm saying. George W. Bush was just a different kind of personality with the population, wasn't he? And maybe my memory of this is just wrong. Maybe I'm just wrong about this. I, I don't think your memory is wrong, but I would characterize it slightly different. Okay. I would think I would say that George W. Bush was less of a partisan than okay. other presidents okay. have been. Okay. And so the idea of George W. Bush as Republican president, I just think is not as imprinted in the brains of people who liked him. And I can identified this in a story that was told by her girlfriend Dana Perino, uh-huh. where she would say that he was she was completely enjoined from criticizing Democrats from the podium when she was White House press secretary. Huh. And he told her, when you're standing up there, you're speaking for me, and I don't want to hear you criticizing the other party huh. while you are up there. Huh. And that is in stark contrast to what we have seen from Biden's press secretary yeah. Yeah. and uh, from Trump's press secretary yeah. and Obama's press secretary. It's, yeah. just, it's just a different way of going about things. And I think that led to a little bit less of the imprinting of the Republican message in the mind of people who were in their formative years. I, uh, that's a better way to put it and think about it, I think. Yes, I, there, it's a much better way to, to go about it and think about it. Um, Tevi, okay, let's talk about your piece. Kind of interesting. Um, your most recent piece, uh, the president's, uh, let me get the right title. It's in the Washington Examiner, presidential candidate's very first decision. You might read that headline and think it's about picking your running mate. I remember in the 88 campaign, uh, Dukakis made a big deal of his first presidential choice. He already gave to you. I picked Lloyd Benson. Bush gave you his. He picked Jay Danforth Quayle. That should tell you what you need to know about us, right? You remember that kind of cheap shot. Uh, I remember, and I also remember that Bush won. (laughs) And I also remember that Bush won by a lot. Yes, nicely put. But their very first decision, kind of interesting. Tell us what you're getting at. It's about when they decide to get in, huh? Right, and that is a really crucial decision. When do you enter the presidential race if you are indeed going to do it? Someone like Jimmy Carter who we, we know well, and we, we pray for him and his family. We know they're in a tough spot right now with his, um, his illness. But Jimmy Carter decided two years before that 1976 presidential election that he was getting in the race. Two years is a really long time to be running for president. Others tried the late-entry approach. Remember uh, Rudy Giuliani or Ed Thompson thought they can enter late and kind of reset the race with, with the, their different approach. And Giuliani famously kind of even ignored Iowa and New Hampshire, thinking that he could he could mop it all up in Florida. It didn't work. But when you enter the race really says a lot about you, about your strategy. And we can see over time that it has had different impacts on different candidates based on when they enter the race. What rule do we learn from it? Hard to discern a little bit, huh? I think it is hard to discern, but it seems to me 
that if you are not an extremely well-known candidate, early is the way to go. Because you need to try and establish some momentum, get some name recognition, kind of do a stealth campaign in Iowa and New Hampshire where you get to know the voters personally, and they want that. They want to know how many times you've been in their living room. And so if you are not an incredibly well-known candidate, you really need to go in early, and late just isn't going to work for you. One of the reasons that getting in early is so important is, and I think this is true of any any election, uh, whether it's really, you know, a contested dog catcher election or the presidency, is that people commit their support. And once they commit to you, it's awfully hard for someone else to come in and get them to commit to them, it, 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 you know, especially at the fundraising level. Let me pick up on that thought when we come right back. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential historian, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Tevi Troy is our guest in his Washington Examiner piece, the most recent one, President, presidential candidate's very first decision about the debate about when, when a candidate should get in. And one of the one of the arguments I was saying about getting in early is to, you know, garner support from, you know, particularly uh, activists who are well known or perhaps, uh, you know, public uh, leaders who are well known, perhaps other politicians that are well known and certainly in the donor class. Because, you know, people line up with you and then someone else comes in. It's very hard to peel them off. It's very hard. Right, Tevi? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, one of the most important things in politics and people often forget this is asking people for their vote. You go to someone, you look them in the eye, you say, I'd love it for you to support me. And you, and you know this, Seth, you've been in the candidacy before. You ask somebody for their vote, it's a very powerful thing. It, people are reluctant to say no to it. And when they say yes, it's hard to shake them off it. If I commit to someone that I will vote for them, it's likely that I'm going to stick with it and vote for them. The one that I think is one of the most interesting ones is the Robert Kennedy, uh, Gene McCarthy, 1968 race. So you have an incumbent sitting Democratic president in Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and Eugene McCarthy is an anti-war activist who gets in. He, is he the first? He's the first to announce his challenge to Johnson. Is that right? And yeah, this, it's actually interesting. And this before Johnson says he's not running again, right? That, yes, uh, and Johnson was seen as not beatable or unbeatable right. in the Democratic race. Right. But McCarthy didn't say he was running for president. He said he was going to enter a certain number of primaries. Uh-huh. uh-huh. One of them being essentially the New Hampshire primaries, the one where he shocked the world and got a large percentage of the vote and forced Johnson to rethink things. But he never said, I'm running for president. He just said, I'm going to enter some of these races for basically for a protest against the, the Vietnam policies of the Johnson administration. Robert Kennedy was his own kind of cult of personality. Um, that's that's probably more fair around him and, and the kind of support he garnered and the interest he had. Uh, and and it, it seems to me you would know a lot better than I, but it seems to me there is actual some debate about had he lived, whether he actually would have won the nomination. Right. There's a little bit of a debate. I mean, the history is that, of course, he was going to. But there is some debate about it. Right. You can never know. 
Yeah. Right? And that's the whole thing, and that's when I end the piece, this idea that you never know until you actually enter, whether go early or late. But once you're in, then things develop in a certain way. But I think the odds are that he would have won the nomination. Yeah. I can't say that he would have won yeah. the election. I mean, Nixon was a formidable candidate in the 68. Uh, Nixon won a very, very close race against Humphrey. Would Kennedy have brought more than Humphrey did possible, as I say in the piece, that he would have been less burdened by Vietnam than, than Humphrey was. But at the same time, Vietnam was not an unpopular issue within the American electorate That's at the right. time. It was certainly unpopular with the elites, and there were protests on college campuses and among the hippies. But the American people were still were still in favor of the war at that time. Yeah, you, yeah, I'm, I'm remembering was it Hollywood versus America or something Michael Medved did about what some of the most popular TV shows and movies of the time were, some of the most popular songs. It was a pretty conservative America in 1968, at least at the cultural level. This was, I mean, Nixon spoke to this in his great nomination speech about how we are not a sick country. And, right, this uh, this is what Nixon kind of tapped into. He he, under, he understood, or as his, his advisors understood, that this narrative uh, that you would see if you learned about America from the New York Times or from University of California, Berkeley, it really wasn't where most of America was. Yeah, look, and the, the best way to see what, what, where America was is in 68, you had both Humphrey and Johnson and, and Nixon, neither of whom, I would say, was anti-Vietnam. Right. I mean, Humphrey had the Vietnam policies in the midst of the Johnson administration. Right. Nixon wasn't saying it was a post-war. But 72 is perhaps a better indicator. The war had gone on for four more right. years. Right. And Nixon was seen as the more pro-war candidate, right. or at least for he sure. didn't want to run. For sure. and, and McGovern was clearly anti-war, and he lost in perhaps the most un- overwhelming defeat in modern presidential history. I mean, it's lost in like 60 to 40. So the the American people were not adamantly against the Vietnam War, as the popular culture of today will suggest. One of the most interesting things, and I think actually the, the history to me is more interesting, is is not those general elections, but uh, the primary races, particularly in those days, uh, let's say Reagan Carter and excuse me, Reagan Ford in 76 is a fascinating story. 68 is kind of a fascinating story. Gary Wills is it was Gary Wills, right? Who wrote Nixon Agonistes? Yeah. I mean, Reagan did. Former t- National Review writer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Before he turned. Uh, who? Yeah, we can do that. We'll do that conversation another time. But. Reagan actually did dip his toe into that race a little bit. People forget they 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 often will say he just ran in two uh, in two for for the presidency two or three times. But starting in seventy six, he he actually kind of went to Miami in sixty eight and tried to give it a shot, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was flirting with it. Um, obviously, George Romney was seen at one point as the, the front runner, right. but he made that that brainwashing comment that uh, that really hurt his, uh, his his attempt. So yeah, there there were a bunch of people uh, playing around with that race, but Nixon really put his head down. He backed a bunch of Republican congressional candidates yep. in 1966, and the Republicans had a good year in 66. Now, back then, a good year meant they gained seats, not gained control of the House. Now there's the possibility of Republicans gaining control of the House is a more regular thing. Uh, but Nixon garnered a lot of favors within the party yeah. and within the congressional establishment for doing that. And he had a pretty smart television strategy. Uh, a young guy, a former producer on the, on the Mike Douglas show named Roger Ailes, <laughs> was his TV advisor. So he, he knew what he was doing in 68 and, and did a good job of it. Is there, as we wrap this up a little bit, Tevi, is there 
one president who you think we all ought to study a little bit more that kind of gets short shrift? I, my candidate is, is is Grant, obviously. Other than Grant, is there someone you've you've liked in all your research and study that you didn't know as much about until you started researching and studying that you would you would urge more people to to to, to read more about? Absolutely. My candidate is one of two presidents who were born in the great state of Vermont, Calvin Coolidge. Yeah, yeah. And he had a vision for the presidency and for the federal government that was smaller and less intrusive. And he actually, unlike some presidents who talk about it but don't do it, he actually carried it out. And the the federal government was a smaller, less intrusive body after his time as president. I've always thought Calvin Coolidge was the direct answer to Woodrow Wilson. When you look at what he stood for, when you looked at some of his speeches, it almost seemed like he directed his presidency as a response or a corrective to the progressivism of what Woodrow Wilson brought in. That is a great thing to explore further and perhaps even something worth writing about. But yes, I think that is a a terrific way of looking at Calvin Coolidge and his it's more modest approach to the presidency, which I think is something we can all embrace. Yeah, and I, I got that idea by reading his, uh, you know, his his speech on the on the Fourth of July in nineteen twenty six on the bicentennial. Excuse, yeah, on the, uh, yeah, right. No, the, 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 150th. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Sorry for that error. But yeah, his speech on that is a direct response, I think, to the way Woodrow Wilson spoke about the direct Declaration of Independence. And anyway, it just gave me the thought. And anyway, we can explore that further next time. Tevi, you're a prince for joining us on George Washington's official birthday celebration today. Thank you, sir. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. I'll be back with a final thought. Yeah, that that speech, Tevi was right. It's it's called the sesquicentennial. I don't know why I got my brain twisted up on that. But Calvin Coolidge's speech on the 150th anniversary of our birth was, a, I think, a direct response to Woodrow Wilson, who kept talking in his day about the Declaration of Independence as not actually being anything final and settled, but up to each generation to interpret for themselves and to come up with their own truths, uh, not, uh, not, not, not self-evident truths applicable to all men at all times, as Abraham Lincoln said, but for people to apply them to their own days as they see fit Maybe perhaps he he predated Oprah Winfrey's notion of my truth. Woodrow Wilson did. Maybe that's where she got where she got it. But uh, what Calvin Coolidge said on our 150th anniversary is about the Declaration. There is a finality that is exceedingly restful. It is often asserted that the world was made a great deal has made a great deal of progress since 1776. That we have had new thoughts and new experiences, which had given us a great advance over the people of that day. That we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. That's he's talking about Wilson. But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with their inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions, he went on. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward, toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. 
Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than those of the revolutionary fathers. Well done, Calvin Coolidge. Someone else, if we're going to have a President's Day, we should be celebrating and learning from. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us, folks. I hope you have a wonderful evening. And until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Leibson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.